You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Glenn, uh, today's little fun fact came from a kind of a Wikipedia dive that I did. Um, I, I was poking around stuff about Australia and uh, came across the highest point in Australia. Uh, I don't expect you to know this, but uh, you'd, you'd really surprise me if you did. Any any thought? No, I mean, I would probably have guessed a skyscraper or something odd like that. No, it's a, a relatively flat land, so I would have guessed a, a man-made structure. No, it's got a pretty good... It's got the, the Southern Alps, I guess, um, down there. It's a place called Mount Kushkushka. And um, I thought, well, that's kind of a weird name for an Australian mountain. That sounds very Polish. Uh, mm. And turns out, um, the, the Polish explorer that first uh, climbed it named it after a Polish war hero, uh, General Kosciuszka, who uh, had a very interesting life. Turns out he uh, he joined up with General Washington and helped out with the American uh, Revolutionary War, um, went back across to Europe, went up against Napoleon, was captured and imprisoned by Catherine the Great, and was just generally regarded as a huge hero of uh, Poland. And then he went even further, and turns out, while Mount Kosciuszka is the highest point in Australia, it's not the highest point in Australia. <laughs> okay. Meaning, it's the highest point on the continent of Australia, but not in the country of Australia, because there's a island kind of in the, go like halfway between Australia and Madagascar, and just go straight south for a little bit ways. Uh, you come to a, an, an uninhabited island called uh, Heard Island which has an even higher mountain, and it's a territory of Australia, and then even more, three more mountains on the Australian section that they claim of Antarctica are also higher, and that's mm. also considered, at least by them, as an Australian territory. Mm. So, one of those weird things that um, that was geographically interesting, and then, you know, from this Polish uh, general, uh, interesting uh, from just a interesting and diverse life that he led as well so that's my thing to share today that's cool um i hope our polish and australian uh, listeners enjoy especially the polish australian listeners exactly uh yeah both of them um right so today uh i want to remind listeners that this episode of the double podcast is first brought to you by the california wine club Uh, you can go to cawineclub.com uh, to order monthly delivery of two bottles of wine uh, every month. Uh, I recently signed up, and uh, I am currently enjoying a uh, very nice bottle of uh, 2013 Tangent Grenache Blanc. Oh, I love Grenache. Um, Blanc? Grenache Blanc? Uh, yeah. It's pretty dang good. So yeah. if you uh, are interested in signing up and having wine show up at your door uh, once a month, a couple bottles, uh, you can go to cawineclub.com, and when you check out, use the promo code DOUBLELOOP for 15% off, and that also helps support us. Similarly, uh, you can go over to audible.com. Uh, audible provides uh, books on tape, or audiobooks, books on your phone now, uh, where you can listen to uh, true crime, 
You can listen to fiction, nonfiction, anything that you you know would instead read. Listen to it instead on your way to work or while you're doing those comparisons after you turn off the Double Loop podcast or on the way on a long drive to a crime scene. Go to audibletrial.com slash double loop for a free month and a free audiobook with that trial. So with that, Glenn, we have a special guest on this episode. And why don't you go and introduce him for us? Yes, all the way from the state of South Carolina, we have Mr. John Black on the phone. Hi, John. How you doing? I'm well. How are you? I am good, sir. Uh, for the listeners out there, uh, John Black and I both teach a class together, and that's sort of how I've gotten to know John over the years. We teach the um, a, a class in sufficiency decision and exclusion decisions. And, uh, John, I've been teaching that for what, maybe four years now, John, is that about right? Three, four years. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, and, uh, sure as listeners know, Eric teaches his exclusionology class. And when we were designing this around the same time, Eric was putting his stuff together, we made sure they really didn't overlap very much. And I'm sure there's probably a few thing, common themes that run throughout, but it's nice that they're, they're separate content and separate classes. So we're not, not really competing with each other, so to speak. Right, Eric? As far as I know, that's the word I've heard from people that have taken both classes, but none of us three have really taken each other's classes in the in the multiple day versions of it. But um, no, that is what I hear from people that have taken both, is that really different things are emphasized uh, and, um, and, and you know, they're really, uh, really happy to have taken both. Yeah. And so, uh, John, uh, I'll, I'll give you a chance to refresh listeners you've been on the podcast before but it was some time ago and we're glad to have you back so john why don't you tell a little bit about yourself and uh what you've been up to these days well it's good to be back i appreciate you uh having me back on the program i currently have my own forensic consulting and training company black and white forensics that I operate out of my home office and i do uh consulting for um defense, prosecution, coroners, whomever needs the assistance. Uh, I also provide training to uh, local law enforcement, to attorneys and others. Uh, that keeps me pretty busy between those two things. Um, I also conduct training still as a contract, uh, on a contract basis for Ron Smith and Associates. You alluded to the class that, that you and I teach, and, and I still contract with Ron Smith and Associates to teach that class and some other classes. Uh, so between those responsibilities and also trying to manage a small business, that keeps me pretty busy. I can imagine. And, uh, well, one of the reasons that we asked you to come on today, besides your sparking personality and your knowledge about the profession <laughs> and the discipline, is that you were really actively involved for a period of time writing a report uh, that Eric and I are going to probably go a little deeper into in a future episode but uh, why don't you discuss a little bit about the report, the title of the report, and how you got involved in this report? Well, uh, to try to keep a long story short, <laughs> I was I was approached in 2015 at in the initial OSAC meetings uh, by a colleague who just simply said something mysterious. He said something good is coming your way, and I of course had no idea what that was. Money, wine. That none of that was mentioned. No. Mm. So very mysterious. So a few days later, I received a phone call from the American Association for the Advancement of Science, also known as AAAS, asking me to be 
the subject matter expert for an upcoming report that they wanted to work on, looking at basically a quality and gap analysis of latent fingerprint literature and research needs. And they said there would be a working group and wanted to know if I would be uh, apparently the lone practitioner on the working Again, that happened a few days after the OSAC meeting, but voila. Uh, and then a little bit later on in the year, I ran into another colleague as as this AAAS thing was starting to crank up, and he said, "Oh yeah, you're the you're the token practitioner." So that kind of made me wonder that would tend to bias anyone that maybe there's some type of agenda. So anyway, um, I was a little bit taken aback by that comment by another colleague who apparently knew more about what I was getting into than I did. Mm, okay. you, know, you know how that goes, though. I, I, yeah, I do. I do. Uh, w- would it be too soon in your story to ask who the other folks on the committee were at this time? Oh, not at all. The uh, the working group, uh, besides myself, consisted of uh, Bill Thompson uh, from uh, University of California, uh, Irvine, uh, mm-hmm. Anil Jane from Michigan State, and Jay Cadane from Carnegie Mellon University. Right. And in, po- in previous podcasts, we talked about some of Bill Thompson's papers. He's very much into psychology and DNA interpretation, and I think kind of got his roots there, but has branched out to other disciplines. And he's um, been this scientist, social science, sociological, psychologist, scientist, DNA, statistics on the side, uh, who's been more involved in stuff recently. And Neil Jane does biometrics and research and APHIS research at Michigan State University. And Jay Cadane had nothing to do with any forensic science prior to this, nothing at all, but got involved uh, through CSAFE, this organization that got this big five-year grant uh, to develop a statistical model for various disciplines, including fingerprints. And Jay's university was part of that group uh, consortium of statisticians that got that grant. Is that a fair coverage of those three? It is. Very much so. Why don't we why don't we go to your first meeting where you get a chance to meet these folks and how often are you meeting? What do you what how you know how do you lay out your goals? What are your objectives for this report? Uh, you know, going into this, how uh, how are you looking at the this overall thing and what do you hope personally to accomplish? So at the outset, the scope of the project seemed, you know, fairly large. We were being asked to look at the existing fingerprint literature, again, looking to see how it uh, assessed the status of the, uh, of the fingerprint science, the discipline, performance, things like that, uh, validity, which probably sounds a lot like the PCAST report. And, and that's, that's called a gap analysis, right? Correct. It's a gap analysis looking for, as it says, looking for gaps in the research, trying to identify research needs. And also uh, one thing that was uh, apparently going to maybe set this report apart from something like NAS is that unlike the NAS report, the AAAS report actually did recommend specific research to be done in certain areas, whereas NAS just kind of hinted at the need for research. Uh, with AAAS, it it turns out that we were we were going to try to be developing a, a research agenda going forward, and that would be discipline specific to fingerprints. Yes, and, and as a matter of fact, since you since you brought that up, I think the original goal of AAAS was to have a report on a number of the forensic disciplines. Ah, okay. But and so they did the first report that they published. I think had to do with arson investigation. Oh right, yeah. 
So yes, you're you're correct that there would be disciplines specific for latent prints. In fact, AAAS, I think their goal was to issue a report on a number of forensic disciplines. The first one they published was on arson investigation, and then the latent print report came out in September of last year. And I'm not sure of the status of any future reports. Yeah, I, I remember the arson one, the fire investigation, because it really did impact and was being used a lot for some of the testimony and some of the challenges that were coming to fire investigation. Yes, and um, as a matter of fact, since you mentioned testimony and challenges, I've, I've seen at least maybe one or two cases in recent months where the AAAS Clayton Fingerprint Report has been cited in motions and things like that. Yes. Now, were the the uh, the points raised in some of those uh, those trials or uh, challenges were they were they surprises or were they you know kind of things that that you know you could see coming as you were working on the document as as big contention points within your guys's discussion? I think we could I think we could see what was probably going to be coming. Um, you know, uh, the, this particular report has not. Has not been mentioned nearly as much, of course, as like an NAS or a PCAST report, and that's perfectly fine. But you know, a lot of the a lot of the issues that we found in our gap analysis, we actually had our report drafted prior to the PCAST report coming out. And when we saw the PCAST report, we realized that the folks on PCAST had come to some of the same decisions we had, and in fact, some of those issues go back to NAS as well, and some of those even go back uh, to the human factors report. So there's a lot of harmony between those four particular papers. And, and overall, uh, you know, what, what would you say was probably the most contentious issue as, as a practitioner that you could see in this report? In other words, the one thing that, you, you know, you, you're anticipating, oh boy, that could be a problem. I, I think that the most contentious issue for me is the reporting language that was suggested. Mm-hmm. Yep. You have to you have to realize that again, I was I was just one practitioner, you know, among you know, among the four working group members and you know, and and my hat is off to to the other members of the working group because they were trying to understand from a non-practitioner perspective, what I was trying to relate to them. And, of course, uh, you know, I certainly agreed with with uh, the criticisms that talk about how we have overstated the conclusions throughout the years and the the phrasing we used in testimony and reporting was not supported. And, and then, you know, the Army Crime Lab or the Defense Forensic Science Center came out with their abandonment of the term identification and used association and started with uh, with different language and and you know the working group seemed to seem to like that and then they kind of they kind of we went a different direction and and it, it didn't really totally make me happy and as both of you can likely imagine when you work on a project of this magnitude with people of different backgrounds not everybody always walks away feeling satisfied. Yeah, you you have to make some concessions to get something out. That's that's true. You do have to make some concessions, and you know I think everybody on the working group made some concessions to eventually you know get a product out there that can now be 
reviewed and scrutinized, and maybe people can learn something from it. But I know a lot of people, you know, were not happy with the report, and they think it's just more of the same second-generation PCAST or third-generation NAS or whatever the case may be. But I feel like the the recommendations and the conclusions that are in the report are reasonable. Uh, but I do think the suggested language for for testimony, I think, almost takes it too far the other way and, and almost seems to water it down too much. Hmm. Well, and that's that's my concern. While that's there, let me let me quickly read just um, uh, well first the, what a reminder of what the army said, and then um, and then what this AAAS report said before we get into some other topics. Uh, the army's reminder said uh, the latent print on Exhibit X and the record fingerprint bearing the name Y uh, have corresponding ridge detail. The likelihood of, of observing this amount of correspondence when two impressions are made by different sources is considered extremely low. And then in this AAAS report, uh, the suggested wording is the latent print on exhibit X and the record fingerprint bearing the name Y have a great deal of corresponding ridge detail with no differences that would indicate they were made by different fingers. There's no way to determine how many other people might have a finger with a corresponding set of ridge features, but it is my opinion that this set of features would be unusual. That's an awful lot to say. <laughs> and, and I think most I think most practitioners probably choked on the army language and probably uh, kept on choking with the. <laughs> Maybe can't get that bone out of their throat right now. What do you guys think about that particular language in AAAS? I'm curious. Because I don't, I have not heard a lot of practitioner feedback, and I'm just curious what you, the two of you, who are both respected examiners in the in the latent fingerprint community, what what you think about the language. If I may, if I may turn the tables and ask sure. you guys a question. Sure. Oh, I love it when the guests ask those questions. <laughs> For me, it, it, like you said, it, it's uh, I think it waters it down too much. Um, Glenn and I have a lot of episodes to get out here soon because uh, the uh, OSAC has just put out. Um, uh, a, a conclusion document with a, yet another uh, way of phrasing all of that. Uh, one of the things I'd like best about that is that while the definition may be long and involved like these, uh, it, it could still be summarized with the word identification. And I think that uh, using categorical terms uh, is completely fine, that there's nothing unscientific about reporting out uh, a categorical conclusion and then figuring out the definition is something that we can all uh, you know figure out for all the with all the share the stakeholders figure out what what best definition to put behind that that categorical category I guess um, but um, for this one yeah saying there's no way to determine how many other people might have that finger again it's true but it's it, it kind of understates how discriminating uh, friction ridge detail is. Glenn? Well, uh, I would say, uh, given my uh, my own company reports, and that I'm free to report the way I want right now, <laughs> I can say that here's what I say. I say I identified the left index finger of so-and-so. But in the next little section below that, I say... And by identification, I mean that given the degree uh, that the probability to observe this degree of corresponding discriminating characteristics, in my opinion, is extremely low if this person is not the source of the latent print. 
So if if this was made by some uh, and this is now I'm riffing if this if this was made by some other person uh, the to to observe this degree of corresponding discriminating characteristics by random chance is just it's 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 just too low of a probability for me to 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 consider and that's basically I lay out identification I use that word but then define it very similar to how the Army Crime Lab basically describes it. And at some point later in the report, I have more detailed definitions of identification exclusion and what I mean by these using more probabilistic language and a verbal scale of strong support, extremely strong support, and so on. So I lay it out later, but I'm still using the term identified just because it's it's easier, it's quicker. I know what I mean. And if I'm asked about it, it's somewhere in the report in footers or, you know, boilerplate terminology later in the report. I appreciate both of your uh, inputs on that, and I think I think those are reasonable responses, quite frankly. I, I, I think that, uh, I mean, John, you were part of this committee, and I think you got the sense of a tide turning here, and that it, doubling down on individualization to the exclusion of all others is not going to serve our discipline very well. We might not exactly like the the strength of the tide pulling us out there. Like you said, Eric, it waters things down a little bit and it gives a bit of discomfort. But we're we're all struggling to find that language without actual numbers. And that's the hardest part. We're trying to capture this. We don't expect it. We think it's a really low chance. We think that this is the person to some degree of reasonable certainty. We just don't know how to quantify any of that. And when we do decide to give this unquantifiable but categorical conclusion, we're virtually always right, especially within a larger quality assurance system. Yeah, okay. That's fair. Yeah. And then that gives you your black box error rate on top of it, which, again, you guys recommended using those sorts of error rates, right, John, in the AAAS report? Yes, the uh, working group uh, tended to favor more black box type studies right. when when statistics are absent from the from your conclusions or you're quantifying that well yeah. let me ask you this john um this is we just kind of covered the thing that kind of gave you the most pause in the uh, the report what was the uh, the part that um that you were most proud of or or, or um to put it bluntly favorite part of this report your biggest win or get? Not everybody in the working group was amenable to the suggestions and the content that I was raising. In fact, one of the working group members kept kept stating that the studies that have been published in FinAS shouldn't carry that much weight because they don't deal with examples of you know casework they don't simulate casework and and i totally balked at that during the meeting the the one in-person meeting we had and of course all the virtual meetings we had i think that's uh, i don't think you can say that because at some level all those studies that were that were done they simulate some extent some degree of casework some level of casework and you can't say that they are totally non-representative casework that was that was the hardest thing to try to get across to members of the working group yeah, that sounds like an elitist statistical argument <laughs> where if they didn't do the study themselves and it's not quite good enough. Or like you said, if it if it wasn't a blinded casework study, then we shouldn't even be generalizing at all to potential casework. Or it tells us nothing still about 
our ability to do this task. Right, and I, w- I would totally disagree because I think the studies that have been done are very informative. I, I, would, I would agree, too. But understand certain things, uh, certain uh, weaknesses, such as with exclusion decisions versus identification decisions. You know, the, the trend is there. The research shows it. Most people's casework experience shows it if they've actually verified exclusions over time. Yep. Yeah. You know, and, yeah, you both just chirped, <laughs> chirped in and said yes right away without even thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, that, that trend is there, and that's, that's irrefutable. Right. A layperson versus expert and expert practitioner, again, very valuable data there. Well, and even in all those studies themselves, they asked the participants if this was, you know, how similar this was to casework, and it all came through as pretty dang similar to casework. So I, I, I find it difficult that they to understand why they maintain that when that's even part of the study. It, it is, and, and I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what in the world the study design would look like in their minds if it had to reflect casework at all levels. I just don't know what that looks like. I think it may have already been done, quite frankly. I, I guess the only other thing to do is, is would be to introduce it as casework so that the examiner doesn't know that it's not casework. Well, For right, me, that's, that's the only other thing yeah. I can imagine doing that they haven't already done in Black Box. That was a big part of the AAAS report, and one of the suggestions yeah. was to you know, insert those cases into the workflow to try to truly get some type of error rate from casework that we could actually match against ground truth versus going with the consensus approach, which we have to do now since we don't have the ground truth. And I, I'd be, um, I'd very much applaud the, uh, the first agency that that's able to do that and, and get that out or I don't get funding for it or just take it upon themselves to do. Um, I, I, That'd be a fantastic thing to come out of some large agency starting to put these things through without their examiners knowing that this is happening and then writing up a report saying ground truth examples introduced as casework has a great um, super low error rate. Yeah, I would love to see that as well. It will, it'll take much effort on the part of, you know, some agency, Agency X, with lots of resources to make it work. And, and, and Glenn knows all about the all the stuff that has to happen to, to pull this off. But it is doable if, if an agency wants to commit the resources to that. But I've had other agencies tell me when I've been on the road, you know, teaching that they simply sometimes don't even want to know. They don't even want it to go down that path, and you know, I don't. I don't think that's a good approach either. Ignorance is bliss doesn't work for me in this domain. Right, right. You can't really bury your head in the sand on this uh, on this thing. So, uh, one one last question for you, John. Here, uh, ultimately, the the research recommendations. Do we think that this will be something that will be useful for NIJ grant applications, or maybe even at now, you know, through uh, national uh, uh, NSF, National Science Foundation, where I mean, there's a lot a lot of money for research. Will this broaden perhaps research capabilities and attract researchers to specific ideas that you guys identified in your gap analysis? I think it will, provided people, you know, want to go in there and look at those recommendations for research. But I think there are some good recommendations, and I feel like there are certainly some merit to those. And hopefully agencies, uh, the entities that have the resources, will, will pony up those funds for some of these projects. Now, you're presenting on this uh, later in the summer at the IAI, right? Uh, you're, uh, you've got a presentation. Want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'm, I'm still writing that presentation <laughs> because there's a number of different directions I can go with it. But it's basically just 
you know, called the AAAS Latent Fingerprint Examination Report, Thoughts from the Lone Practitioner. I'm just going to kind of share my perspective in working with, you know, three very esteemed, very respected professionals in their domains and then trying to come together and, again, come up with a work product that we knew would not be liked by everybody, but hopefully it's something that people can utilize, you know, going forward. I think it has got some solid recommendations, uh, just like the Human Factors Report from back in 2012. If I recall, that particular publication, which I had a chance to be one of the reviewers on that one, that had about 34 recommendations. Yep, that sounds right. You know, NAS had 13 recommendations, PCAST had 8, AAAS had 14, and there are some overlaps there. But I, uh, I was, I was very fortunate to be a part of the group, and I was, I'm thankful that I was given the opportunity. But you know, like I said, it wasn't all, it wasn't all rosy. There were some contentious conversations, and but you expect that when you get a group together and people have their own belief systems and their own ideas and. And uh, but I, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. It was a two-year process, which I very much enjoyed, and I just want to you know share some of that with the uh, anyone who will want to maybe come see that. That's actually going to be in a couple weeks at IAI. Yeah. So the fact that I don't have it totally written yet is a bit more alarming. <laughs> than the proximity of the uh, of the date. Well, to be honest, uh, John, I don't have all my lectures written yet either. Glenn, are you done with all yours? I'm Ask Glenn that question. We, I know the answer to that question. <laughs> uh, I, I do not. <laughs> well, it's not like me to not be prepared already. I should have been prepared six months ago, but things just get in the way. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm I'm drilling it down. I've I've got it. I'm, I've I drilled drilled it down some more last week. So hopefully I will come up with uh, something to present uh, during that time slot, which they have graciously given me. So I'm hoping I can <laughs> rise to the occasion and come up with the rest of the material for that presentation. All right, well, John, thank you so much for for coming on the show again. I know that that there have been examiners, and I don't have time to go through them all now, but uh, you know who you are that that requested that we talk about this report since going back to last year. So uh, thank you very much for for coming on. And uh, like we said, Glenn and I will go over in more of a finer tooth comb uh, some of the points uh, of this. We're going to talk to Carrie here next, and then um, I think we're planning on doing another whole episode just with Glenn and I talking about, you know, uh, some of the finer details uh, that's in this, oh, 160 pages uh, of, of material. Um, we can focus on the eight recommendations. It, yeah, that, that's one way <laughs> to narrow things down. Well, thanks again very much for coming on the show, John. So uh, listeners out there, you know, for a while now, every episode has started with a request to ch- check out patreon.com. If you're not familiar with, you know, the way, you know, different podcasts or YouTube channels or stuff like this on the internet works, uh, a lot of them ask their, their listeners, the people that get something out of uh, this experience, to go on to uh, patreon.com is basically the, the one that's used almost all the time and uh and sign up to make it a, a continuing donation so this is kind of like the the pbs um you know pledge uh, drive or, or, or pledge drive or npr pledge drive 
so we, we are counting on your donations uh, to to help make this possible. You know, Glenn and I um, usually every week. You know, sometimes we we miss things, and but we're now getting kind of back on track for things. You know, spend an hour or two or so uh, recording, talking to each other about this, and then uh, you know I sit back and and spend a couple hours over the next week putting it all together. Uh, for you guys and uploading it for you guys to listen to and so we, we we're looking to um expand our donation base and uh advertiser base um obviously as you've heard over the past few episodes uh even just a dollar a month uh does go a long way to helping us because i know we've got you know hundreds of listeners thousands of listeners across the world that uh, tune in every week so you know if you guys can uh can make that donation to us we really would appreciate that and it'll help us get better you know glenn and i are are, have researched some of the things that podcasts typically use and we're a little behind the times on that so we're we're hoping to update some of the equipment that we're using but also just the the time investment uh, would, would would um go a long way into helping out with with the time that we devote to uh, recording and editing together uh, this podcast for you all. Just a quick reminder, cawineclub.com. When you check out, use the promo code double loop. Or if you want a free a free audiobook, head to audible.com or audibletrial.com slash double loop. Remember, the opinions expressed on this podcast are belong to us and to no agency that we may or may not represent. You can get in contact with us, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Follow us on Twitter at Double Loop Pod. Thank you for our super fan that's keeping that going for us. Listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, and when you uh, go onto those sites, give us those five star, 10 star, 20 star ratings. Uh, those will help get the word out as well. And, and you know if uh, if you want to post comment on Facebook or Twitter whatever the thing that you use is you know let other people know about us as well. So with that, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye everybody. Have a good week. Bye.